The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. I love having a new student because it definitely keeps me on my toes. It, it, it reinforces what I know and what I sometimes need to work on and what I don't always remember. And that's okay. And I make sure the students know that that's okay too, because we're never going to remember everything, especially for not using it all the time. As long as you're willing to relearn and go back and figure it out, then I think that's okay. In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, I speak with Andrea Reed, occupational therapist, about gaining clinical confidence through clinical competence. Andrea and I went to school together. We stayed friends for many years. And when she found out about Pete's passing, she offered to help me in any way that she could with the podcast. And I asked if she would join me for a conversation because I think it's nice to know what it's like from a clinician on the clinician end of things. And we have a lot of conversations in our personal lives about feeling confident in our practice. And Andrea was very gracious to share her thoughts with us. She's very vulnerable in this talk. And some of the things that we talk about are learning by hosting a student. We talk about finding grace for ourselves and for those who we are mentoring. The role of the environment and workplace culture, does it facilitate or hinder growth? We talk about the joy that clients seem to get from being part of a student's learning journey. Andrea shares her preferred process for learning new interventions, and we speak about realistic timeframes in the clinical recovery process. We talk about moving away from shiny object syndrome and finding the ability to focus and learn on one thing for clinical competence and client carryover. And lastly, we talk about plateau thinking, breaking out of a rigid mindset, and the other hours in rehab for giving a person what they need. Before we get into the talk, I want to give you a couple of updates about what I've been working on. The Remembering Pete episode is coming together nicely. Huge shout out to those of you who have sent me recordings and emails. I appreciate it so much. And there's just been such an incredible outpouring of love and people sharing their feelings of loss. If you haven't done that and you would like to, it's not too late. Please make your recording and send it to me at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. Or if you would like to do a short recording with me, again, reach out to me and we can figure out how to make that happen. I know that you all want to remember Pete in a special way. And I know that many of you want to see the podcast continuing on. With that in mind, I have designed the first ever Noggins and Neurons All-Star trading card. 
And guess who's on it? Of course, you know, our favorite co-host, Pete. There's a link in the show notes for ordering. There are two price points, $15 and $20. The $15 option is for anyone who wants to put their order in before I have them printed. And this opportunity will run through February 28th, 2022. And after that, then the price point will go up to $20 to get your all-star peak trading card for noggins and neurons. I have some upcoming episodes that I'm working on recording with a legal team, and we're going to talk about advocacy and medical legal partnerships. I'm sure we'll find some other things to talk about as well. I have some vision therapists who are really looking forward to coming on the show. And then I'm starting a student segment. For the first round, I will have Duval College occupational therapy students working on community practice, and they will be joining me for three separate episodes. And those topics will be post-stroke fatigue, medication management, and a general talk about neuroplasticity. If you would like to be on the podcast, or if you know someone who would be an excellent guest for this podcast, I'm putting a link to an application in the show notes. Fill out that application so we can see if we are a good fit for each other. And lastly, I've got some talks that I'm going to be giving. I'm presenting on mental health at the American Occupational Therapy Association Conference. I'm presenting on that same topic for New York State OT Association. That's happening this week. And then the Well Matters podcast through the New York State OT Association has asked me to join them to talk about mental health. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I do work at the College on Emotional Wellness as part of a mental health field work. And I think that our own emotional state and mental well-being is key for happiness and health throughout life. And then lastly, I've been asked to join the Virtual Geriatric Therapy Summit and talk about mirror therapy. And when I have more details about that, I will share that with you as well. Now, let's get into part one of a two-part talk with Deb and Andrea. Welcome Andrea Reed, occupational therapist and a longtime friend to Noggins and Neurons podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Andrea. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be doing this. It's my first ever podcast. Oh, that can be a little nerve wracking. And I am a little nervous, but well, I'm good. <laughs> nervous is okay. I'm nervous too. Um, yeah, Pete and I used to get a little nervous before we recorded. So I think it's a, I think a little nervousness is a good thing. And I think it's a sign of caring. That's how I look at it. Yes. Well, good. And I've got my little trusty water bottle next to me. It just doesn't have water in it. <laughs> just oh kidding. Just kidding. It's just water. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> well, you know, whatever you need to do to get through. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm really excited and grateful that you're willing to talk to me today and share your knowledge with our audience. Thank um, you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. I think that people might appreciate knowing a little bit of our history if we can share that with them. And they'll know why we're kind of silly together and <laughs> I don't know, we, I think we've had an interesting journey. Yes. And it's a rich friendship. Oh, it is. It goes back pretty far with a lot of uh, turns in the road and mostly all ups for us. So that's a good thing. Yeah. After those downs. <laughs> well, well, I you would, know. I know what you're saying. So our friendship continues to grow. And yes. we support each other through different challenges that we each have in life because life yeah. does bring challenges, whether they're personal or professional. Um, yeah. That's and very true. 
You know, I, I have to say, so we've been friends. I think we figured out the other day that we've been friends for almost 20 years or yeah, maybe Isn't more. That insane? Where does I can't... the time go? Well, I'm not sure. And I feel like the same person when I met you. I don't know. I just, yeah. Anyway. You are. Uh... <laughs> You're goofy <laughs> and raw, sometimes raunchy, which I love. <laughs> That's a little secret that you just let out of the bag. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little sweary too. Yeah. I acknowledge that. Um, Thank yeah. God. I know, right? That you are. <laughs> well, we have a mutual friend who talks about personality in terms of color and um, accents, home accents. So uh, people with no personality or a very flat personality she refers to as a beige pillow. And I would say that <laughs> neither you nor I are beige pillows. <laughs> I hope not. So <laughs> I love that. I'm going to start using that in my life. <laughs> I know. And you'll see right over here, I'm recording in my my living space, you'll see my red and blue pillows over I there. I love it. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely color over here. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So oh anyhow, goodness. Let's get to the good stuff. Okay. Okay. I know we were talking in preparation for this episode that we, we love the idea of discussing clinical competence, clinician confidence, and how, how people get that. How do we get that confidence? How do we become competent? And um, while we met in OT school, our journeys have been very different. Yes. And I know that you're willing to share some of your journey mm -hmm. and, a, and yours, your transition to the clinic is more recent than mine, although you are, mm -hmm. you do have a significant amount of experience under your belt. But, you know, both of us care very much about our own practices. We care about helping our clients and we care about helping other practitioners to grow in their practices as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know that you take students at your facility and you help them to learn. And I, I do, I personally find that I grow a lot when I'm helping another person learn. Yes. So maybe that's a good place to start. Okay. How does that go for you? With a new student? Um, yeah. You know, it's a little nerve wracking always in the beginning um, because you? you don't know, or well, the, for both of us probably, <laughs> but for me as well, mm -hmm. definitely, because you don't know what kind of background they're coming from as far as experiences, personality, education, all of those things and what they're, and, and also what's personally going on in their life because, you know, some students come in and everything is good. And other students, you know, have things going on. And you know what? I've had things going on in my personal life. And it makes it more challenging at times. But I love having a new student because it definitely keeps me on my toes. It, it, it reinforces what I know and what I sometimes need to work on and what I don't always remember. And that's okay. And I make sure the students know that that's okay too, because we're never going to remember everything, especially for not using it all the time. As long as you're willing to relearn and go back and figure it out, then I think that's okay. But I love having students. I love knowing that I'm being able to give them something. And I'll be honest with you, when I took my first student, I was so nervous because I was like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I know enough. But typically you're told, you know, you're the clinician, the student is just learning. So I do know enough and anyone taking a student is going to know enough, even if they don't think so. And that definitely translates over into, you know, what you're teaching the students and what they're teaching you because there's new things being developed all the time, new concepts, new theories, you know, so they can kind of fill you in on what you're not so much, you know, involved in when you're not in the academic setting. So yeah, I love it. Um, I've had some great students and they're very eager to learn. And then I've also had a student or two where I need to nurture them a little bit more. And this kind of goes back to our paths 
we took different paths getting to OT and I feel very humbled and it's a great reminder that just because somebody doesn't know something very well, doesn't mean that they're not going to be a great clinician. Some people just need a little bit more, um, a little bit more TLC, I guess, in that department. And I had a student recently who very much mirrored my situation that I've kind of experienced in the past. And, you know, she was smart, but she definitely had, you know, she had some personal challenges outside of what was going on, but she had gone through a couple of different supervisors and was just not successful. And I think once I sat down with her and really listened to what she had to say, and she was raw with me, I was able to also open up about my journey to OT and we connected in that way. And I was able to give her the confidence that she needed to know that it's okay if you don't know everything. But to me, if you're good with the patients and you're respectful of, of them and you give them what they need, then all the other pieces are going to come together. And she successfully completed her last rotation with me. And I was very proud of her because it was challenging and she just needed the right person, I think, to kind of guide her along. I appreciate that. I know I, I am a field work coordinator and I try my best to place students at sites where they will fit well, that will be a good fit for them. And um, if I know the fieldwork educator, their personality and their teaching style and things like that, then I try to be mindful of those things. And it sounds like that student had a good fieldwork coordinator because she, she got some other chances. and we've had to deal with situations like that at our school and it is worth it to me in the end because but you know i have a lot of thoughts about this and the learning curve like we're we're always in a learning curve and yes. i'm learning so one of the things that i've i've spoken about on the podcast is carol dweck's book um it's it's all about a fixed versus growth mindset mm -hmm. and I know myself over the years, I used to have more of a fixed mindset. And then I learned, I'm learning, I should say, to be more open-minded and use my critical thinking skills, which I think we develop as we become clinicians because yes. our, that clinical reasoning piece is mm -hmm. really important. It is. And it's intertwined with critical thinking and, you know, really being open to facilitating the opportunities and then allowing people their own growth process. Well, we're OTs. I mean, that is like, we are a holistic um, area of study, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is our field. This is our area of expertise. We look at the whole person and I feel like as OTs, we absolutely should embrace those who are struggling. I mean, that's what we do every day is teach our patients who are struggling how to change things, how to modify things. So it's not so much a struggle. So isn't that what we're doing as clinicians? And when we're educating our students, it's not to just be like, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. We would never tell our patient that we might do it in a very loving and firm way and go about it differently. But that that's what we should be doing with our students and with ourselves, I think we need to give ourselves more grace and give each other grace. And I don't think that we do that enough. Yes. And I, I just want to clarify within all of that, that we all are responsible for our own selves as well. So the goal isn't to make someone pass or make someone succeed. It's to really create an environment where people feel they have the opportunity to grow and develop certain skills. I agree. And I will also say one of those moments and ways that I feel like when I was a student, immediately the way I was welcomed by the facility I was at, whether it be during my internship or at a job, to me is like 
the biggest deal because if you go into a place where you do not feel welcome, where you do not feel as a student you're going to get help, it can absolutely crush your whole experience. And the one thing I love about where I work in my facility is everybody, like we have 20 therapists between speech, OT, and PT. Everybody, including my boss, are so helpful, so welcoming, so funny, so warm, will do anything to like help in any way, shape, or form. And that can make or break an experience for a student, hands down. It can, and it can for a new clinician as well. So I know that we've talked about where you work many times, and it sounds like they're very receptive to trying new modalities, new communication strategies. They're open to embracing change that will create a better experience for everybody involved. Yes, they are. And that just makes a big difference. And it's not just the place, but it's the people. And, you know, the therapists are always open to hearing new ideas. Nobody's like, it's my way or the highway. It's, hey, what do you have to offer? And let me hear. And that's what I love. It's just good people. And especially, let me talk about COVID. I mean, COVID has really ruined, or I don't want to say ruined, but it has changed the learning experience for a lot of students because there's been no placements available. I mean, it's been hard. And a lot of these students are having to learn how to do hands-on via the computer, like Zoom, or it's just not the same. So our facility has been excellent about, you know, trying to get students in and take them. So now that things are kind of, I mean, things are opening back up, but then they close back down, but we've been taking students and it's been good because you can't learn being you know, helping a person if you can't actually be with that person and touch that person and, you know, talk to that person. So, yeah. So just to clarify for everybody, you're a, a generalist and it's a subacute rehab facility that you work in and mm -hmm. long-term care, correct? Yes, that's correct. I love what you're saying. And I remember being a student and how the people, the patients, the clients that I worked with loved being my patient because they like that opportunity to help another person learn they many so many do. people do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i i think it's a wonderful um opportunity for two people to kind of nurture each other mm -hmm. through a learning a learning and healing experience absolutely and it is it's so true i love because i work with the geriatric population obviously and they for the most part, they want to help. They embrace the students and, you know, they have so much knowledge and so much to offer. It's just great to see the interactions. So, yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's, this is a good opportunity to lead into our next talking point of feeling confident with interventions that work, knowing which interventions work and um, when and how to use them, especially this podcast is about the neurological population recovering from stroke and brain injury. And you know, we know as clinicians that it, it's, it can be a long journey for survivors and their caregivers. And oh so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about developing like that ability to select interventions, feeling confident in your selections, like what has helped you? So for me, I'm just, I'm very much a hands-on person. I like to see somebody try a modality or a technique. This is how I've always been as, even as a student and even just in my life in general, I kind of need to see it happen. Then I kind of need you to walk through with that person how to do it. And then, of course, then you need to like try it on your own. I will say, you know, there is definitely uh, things that I feel like I'm good at and things that I know I need to improve on. And I think that does come down to confidence in the clinic. And also, I go back and I think about how much did I really learn about these certain modalities? Like, how much experience was I allotted as a student and even as a clinician now? And Really, when I look back, I don't feel that I got enough experience in modalities. I don't think there's enough um, 
emphasis on the different modalities and how they work. And I feel like you think about all the classes that we take and we spend a whole semester learning about theory and a whole semester learning about, you know, different, different techniques to use with patients and range of motion and, and measuring for, um, you know, the different upper extremities and lower extremities, but we don't really have a long time to learn about different modalities. It's just, sometimes I think it was just a class or two. And then, you know, we can learn on our own through CEUs, but it's still not the same as actually being able to do it in the clinic. So for me, there are things, I'll be honest with you, I don't really use a lot because I don't feel confident in it. And now that we're in this, you know, time frame of we have to see the patients and we have to get their treatments in and we have to document, you know, by the time I'm done, I'm mentally done. <laughs> and so to go back and have to learn this, it's just, it's challenging. And I will say though, there are some clinicians where I work that are so good with modalities that I know if I ask, you know, they will go through it with me again or refresh my memory, but it's just hard sometimes finding the time. Um, I think taking advantage of when sometimes admissions are slower than other times is probably a good opportunity to kind of re-examine those modalities. But I also want to mention that I don't think that the lack of knowing modalities makes you a bad clinician. There's other things that I do that don't necessarily need or warrant a modality. There's different techniques that I use. I love that you just said that. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. So when you're speaking about modalities, can you give me yes. some examples of what you're, what you're referring to, because I know a lot of people think about physical agent modalities, but some people think that inter, I mean, interventions are modalities. That's true. That's true. I'm, I guess I'm talking more about physical agent modalities. So like diathermy, e-stim, you know, I can do some e-stim very basic, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know a lot of e-stim. I, it's just not something that I choose to use a lot if I'm working with a stroke patient, but I do think that knowing more could also benefit our patients sometimes more. And that's where I kind of have conflict in my own head is, should I be doing more? Should I know more? Is this going to make me a better therapist so that I can be better for my patient? I love this thought. And I want to, I want to read something from Pete's book that caught my attention uh, when I first learned of his book. And I don't even know how I learned about it. Oh my God, this book is amazing. Well, I can't find it right now, but one of the things that Pete said in either his second edition or maybe and the third edition of his book, but I only have the third edition here in front of me, was that stroke survivors are going to get the intervention techniques or these modalities that clinicians know. And so if we don't know something that could help them, this is how I think about it. If they don't know something that could help them, if we as clinicians don't know something that could help them, then they're missing out. And one of the things that I've seen over my more than 20 years of OT practice and being an OTA educator is that a lot of clinicians continue to use these interventions that are not evidence-based. And in fact, now the evidence is showing that some of them don't work and we shouldn't be using them. And I have a responsibility to address it with students. I have a responsibility to address certain things with the clinicians from my fieldwork coordinator position. And I think that sometimes, I think there are many reasons why this happens with people. But anyway, when I read that in Pete's book, it like really struck a chord with me and I thought, well, I don't want to be that person that isn't willing to learn at least more so that I can offer my clients more. Well, I think also sometimes I think we think we have to use this. We have to use this modality. We have to use this technique because that's what we've learned. That's what it says. But I don't feel like that's true for every patient. And I think it's not true for every situation. So I feel like we have to go back to picking things 
and being confident with what we know is going to work and what I know I know well, because if I know it well, then it's going to benefit my patient. If I'm not using something, it just doesn't necessarily mean I have to use it and doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work or be good for my patient. Right. And I think that's something important to talk about too, is trying something and recognizing, is this working or is it not working? Mm -hmm. And being able to move to a different technique, you know, and, and being open to trying to find out what does work. And I think that that's a good tip for survivors and caregivers too. If you're, if you're doing something and it's not working, mix it up a little bit, learn, learn as much as you can and find clinicians who are, who are providing treatment in a way that you want to try. Now, this is an evidence-based podcast and I know that people are open to trying new techniques and and sometimes people can participate in studies. They can find out about studies that are going on in their area and participate in those. Pete and I have done episodes on what doesn't work. And so I'm not endorsing any specific intervention, but I do endorse doing your research, yes. trial and error under uh, proper supervision is important. You know, always talking to your doctor, your physician, your care provider about what your plans are, what you would like to do. It's funny that you mentioned looking for research, um, you know, topics going on in in your local area because I, and I can't remember what it was because it was like maybe a month ago or three, three weeks or a month ago, but my boss, we were having our our weekly meeting um, that we have in rehab. And she did bring up the fact, and this is the first time I heard it in my time working there, there was um, some research going on for OTs, I think it was. And um, she said, anybody who, you know, wanted to sign up and be a part of that, can't remember what they were, they were researching. But I think it's great that those opportunities are available. And if you have time, I think, like you said, uh, seeing what's new and what's is really a good opportunity to learn something new and to see if it's something that they can bring into their own clinic with their own patients. Yes, I agree. So speaking about that, like I know that one of the problems that we as OT practitioners have is wanting to do everything. Oh, that's exciting. Like the shiny object syndrome. And there's nothing wrong with focusing on one thing and learning one new thing and becoming skilled in that. That is very valid and very important because I used to think, you know, when you go for billing and documentation, oh, I have to do three things or I have to do this many things or I have to show, but you know what, that, that is not necessarily progress and that is not necessarily even needed. I think it's super important for us as clinicians to understand that it's okay, as you said, to just work on one thing for 60 minutes or one thing for 45 minutes. And I think that's really important too, to emphasize to our students and um, because they come in and they're all over the place and they're not sure what to do. And they feel like they should be doing a million things because they want to prove to you that they are going to be a good OT, a great OT. So I think it's good to make them feel comfortable as well. Like, hey, if we're just going to work on putting a sock on and it takes 30 minutes using backwards chaining or forwards chaining or whatever it is, let's do that. Let's make sure that the person really understands every step of putting on their sock. Because if we don't do that, then what good is it with, with the sock aid? And what good is it with the technique if the patient doesn't really get it? So yes, absolutely. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Competence is important, especially for the patient so that they can move on with goals and, and become independent again. Exactly. And in this fast paced society that we live in, I think it's easy to forget that things take time. Learning takes time. And if someone is having a cognitive challenge, if they're having a motor challenge, 
if impaired sensation is thrown in there, then it may take longer. The important thing is that they are actually doing as much as they can themselves because that's how the brain changes is through that actual movement, right? So if it takes 30 minutes to put a sock mm-hmm. on, it takes 30 minutes to put a sock on, but the person actually has the opportunity to do it. And I I always go back to the Mary Riley quote that I love so much. Man, through the use of his hands, as they are energized by mind and will, mm. can influence the state of his own health. Mm, and that's beautiful. Isn't that what mm-hmm. occupational therapy is all about? It is. And sometimes we have unrealistic expectations around time. Yes. And I could go on about that. I think that as clinicians, we have more realistic expectations of time, but I think what I hate to go back to these insurance companies and all that, but I think what their expectation of what real time is, is completely two different things. You know, I'm very blessed to work in a facility that does not really focus on productivity. And that is very rare because they want to make sure that if you need to talk with family members, if you need to change out, you know, wheelchairs, or if you have to fix something or whatnot, that those things aren't getting, um, that, that productivity is not being looked at because the reality is those things happen every day to everyone. So that makes me feel better knowing that, you know, if I need to take extra time or, you know, if I need to focus on one thing, like, oh my gosh, you know, this productivity is going to set me back. And it shouldn't be about that. It should be, how do we get a patient back to functioning as close as possible to where they were? And sometimes I feel like with this whole time thing, sometimes it feels impossible to really give what you need to. And not just in time, as far as minutes treating a patient, because we have that luxury at my place, but time, as far as insurance companies, I mean, and I don't want to get on the soapbox, but, you know, you have a stroke patient come in and, you know, they are under insurance and two weeks come up and they're ready to be, let's, let's up for review and ready to be pushed out the door. And I'm like, how, how is this possible? This is not enough time to give a serious condition improvement time. And it, it, it really, it really, irritates me beyond. I I know it irritates a lot of clinicians. It's just, it's not fair. It's not fair. So I could go on about that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's an important topic. And I think that does tie into confidence and competence because to me, the Mm -hmm. two go hand in hand. And the more, the more you grow each of those areas within you, the more, the more capable you become in advocating for the person that you're working with and helping them, their caregivers, whoever is on their team to also advocate because we all have to advocate for them and they have to advocate for themselves, which seems kind of unfair to me for this person who likely doesn't know how the healthcare system works, Mm -hmm. who is in the middle of a crisis. That's, I mean, that's a life-changing, very life-altering event Mm -hmm. and they're ill. I mean, try to do anything when you're ill is very hard. Mm -hmm. And especially in the neuro area of neuro, I mean, you know, you've had someone who's paid into their insurance their whole life. They worked hard, you know, and all of a sudden they have this traumatic uh, event of a stroke And, you know, there are some people that we know that, you know, a stroke minimally affects that person's function. And then I've had patients more times than not where it profoundly affects their function. And I will re I I would love to tell this real quick. I I remember a patient at another facility that I worked at, he came in with such a profound stroke. I mean, he was dense hemi, like we couldn't get any movement in his upper extremity. There was some movement, very little in his lower extremity. And he worked for, and after just, I think it was about three weeks, they wanted to cut him from insurance and it just blew his mind. It, you know, it, it always blows your mind no matter how many times it happens, but, you know, we appealed with him 
And he won his appeal a couple of times, but he said, you know, when I go back, I'm going to share with them like how this is not okay. I did leave that facility, um, but I, I worked there kind of PRN. And I remember going back and I saw his picture. He sent a picture of himself and he was standing there with a straight point cane. And I, even to this day, I have chills right now. This man went from not being able to move his upper or lower extremity to walking with the cane. But see, we're so quick to dismiss that someone can't recover or can't recover in the time frame that insurance says they need to recover. And then that puts a strain on the clinicians because we have so many things that we need to address with that patient and with the caregiver. Where do we start when we feel pressured to get this person out and then pressured to make sure this person can appeal so they can stay another week? And then what do we do within this week that's going to be the most important if they end up having to leave to go home with their loved one? It's just insane to me that we do not, in our society, provide enough time to allow people to truly recover. I understand that people plateau and things happen, but sometimes you need that to then, sometimes people will plateau a little bit, but then things change and we don't allow enough time for that change. And that is very sad to me. Oh, you are definitely speaking my language right now. So thinking about time and recovery, time plateaus, recovery, change, time, when we feel under crunch for time, no matter who we are, if we're the the person receiving our services or if we're the provider, when we get into that mindset that we feel like we don't have enough time, we don't perform at our best. So, you know, it can lead to feeling anxious and all of those stress hormones flowing through our body and it makes our brain not work as well as it does when we feel like we have enough time. And so it impacts the way that we think about things, Mm -hmm. Um, which we need to be able to think clearly under pressure, we need to, I don't know, I kind of personally, mm-hmm. my personal experience was when the last, um, I don't know, the last several years of my practice, I tried my best to put time out of my mind when I was working because I I looked at it more of what I, I needed to do during my work day. And as long as I could stay in that frame, then I I felt like I was more, I had more Mm -hmm. confidence and I felt like I was um, providing better interactions and better therapy with the people that I was working with and my documentation Mm -hmm. was better. So that was one thing. And then. Absolutely. I agree. You know, recovery and change occurs in stages. So I love what you said about a plateau where it looks like a plateau. And that is definitely something that Pete talks about in his book is that we kind of get into this mindset. Well, I mean, not we, obviously you, me, Pete, we were not there and our listeners are likely not there. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. but where we've been told, we've been taught that people plateau and that is not the evidence does not show that. So if it, if it seems like a person is at a place Mm -hmm. for some time, there's nothing wrong with taking a break for a little while. There's nothing wrong with doing something completely different. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes if people just stop pushing so hard and finding some enjoyment in life, Uh then things start to change again. I agree. It's getting out of that rigid, same routine. And that's hard, especially when you're in a facility. I mean, you think about, you know, patients get, you know, maybe two, I'll say maybe three hours if they're getting speech of therapy a day, but then what's happening those other hours of the day. And that's hard when you're away from home, you're not with family. And especially during COVID when their visits haven't been able to happen and they rely on FaceTime and all those things. It's just, it's hard. It's hard without COVID. It's even harder with COVID. So I agree. And I, I also want to say, I I've learned myself, you know, I used to be by the time I got a clock in this time. I got a clock out this time because you have to be ethical and you have to do it right. But I read, um, an OT, an OT, um, in one of the OT magazines, like several years ago, OT practice, um, a 
a girl was having that same conflict. Like, what do I do? I need to give my patient this and I have to do it within this time frame. Well, she finally realized that as long as she's giving the patient what the patient needs, then that is all that matters. If she knows she can leave that room and knows that I gave everything that patient needs for that day with within reason, of course, I mean, we have to stick to minutes, but I kind of go by that myself. It's like, you know what, if I gave my patient what they need and I've taught them something, then I can put my head down on my pillow at night and be okay with that. But I think we are so pressured to live by this, this boxed in time, which it's, I get it. You have to see patients, a million patients throughout the day. So you have to have some kind of start and end point, but it's just giving the patient what they need and giving them time to show that improvement. Yes, 100%. I agree. And I love what you were saying about the other hours that they're in rehab. And you and I have spoken about this in terms of what can we do as occupational and physical therapy practitioners and within a facility to maybe change that up a little bit. Pete and I were very big on a home program. And why can't people be given a home program that's A, designed to meet their needs? So kind of going along what you were saying, giving that person what they need. A home program doesn't have to be therapeutic exercise. It can be, especially with neuro diagnoses, it can be uh, more of these brain primer types of interventions that Dr. Teasel talked about on one of our episodes. And why can't we give them like a, a mirror therapy kit or why can't we show them some action observation videos, Ooh. create these programs that are designed for them and show them how to use those and give them the opportunity to do that while they're in the facility. And then that way we can still monitor this program with them. And that gives us the chance to see like, yes. are they, are they independent with this? Are they able to follow through with this? Do they need supervision? And then mm -hmm. we use our, our mm -hmm. OT or PT training these skills that we're developing that we learn about in school that we're developing every day when we go to work and kind of i what what is the thing that i want to say here like build the underlying supports that need to happen for that follow-through because those interventions are safe for people to do at home and we want them to be able to do that at home and we want caregivers to feel yes. confident, like they're not injuring themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a little bit of a gap there too. When I, I love what you say about like home programs and let, seeing where they can take those home programs and how much more they can build on the skills that they've already learned. Where I see the gap too is, okay, we discharge them home and they get in home therapy in which they continue therapy. We don't know if they're going to continue our therapy, but where's the follow-up with like one of, uh, you would think there might be an OT or PT, like someone hired specifically to follow up with patients after they leave rehab. Like, Hey, how are you doing? How has anything improved since you've left a month ago? Oh yeah. I've got more function in my upper extremity. This is happening like, or this is not happening, but we kind of just say, we kind of send them off discharge, give them some home program or some tips for going home safely. And then we don't know anything about where our patient is in life. And I wish we had something like that, where we could follow through with where our patient is once they do go to home, uh, have home therapy, and then even graduate to outpatient therapy. I want to know how my patients are doing sometimes. And I all often will talk with some of my coworkers, like, I wonder how such and such is. I wonder where the, what they're doing right now. And you know, within the HIPAA compliance for that patient. And, you know, I would love to just have that follow, follow up. And I think it would be great as a facility to know, like, what did, what is what we gave them? Did it help? And they're flourishing or where can we work on a little bit better? Maybe that, or maybe it's just the patient themselves, you know, but I think that would be wonderful to see happen. 
I agree with you. I actually, one of the physiatrists at the MRU that I worked at, that was one of our last conversations that we talked about is that's where we kind of lost connection with those, the people who left our facility and we could do a better job of maintaining that connection and continuing service provision for some people. Some people still need more after Mm -hmm. they leave. And, um, yeah, that would be nice. I think that's a, that would be a lovely service to provide. It would be, I feel like it changes it from, okay, I saw my patient. And of course you get such satisfaction when you know they're doing good or they did something great, but sometimes you just feel like, okay, it's a revolving door, one in, one out, one in, one out. And it feels like sometimes, okay, this is just a job, even though it's not just a job. Let me make that very clear. I don't feel that way at all, but I feel like when we just kind of have to let them go and we don't know anything more, it's just because we rehab them here and we don't know what happens after this process. And it just kind of feels like you just come to an end point, you fall off the cliff and that's it. You don't know where else things are taking this person and you know. Yeah. And that's not really what life is. Life mm-hmm. hopefully continues on for them and yeah. we want them to have a, a good quality oh, yeah. of life. Absolutely. And I think this all ties back again to sometimes clinical competency and, or, or in the confidence you feel. And I feel as if, um, I don't know, X this out. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Well, I can take this somewhere. I think it ties into our growth as clinicians and identifying gaps in care. And so the medical model is very much the provider is the authority and the patient is this person who should do everything that we say that they should do. And we're moving away from that to more of a collaborative model of care. And when I think about collaboration with these people that I'm working with, um, it, it makes me understand. It helps me remember that they are, they are another human mm-hmm. and we're on this journey together with them. And that's goes back to the OT, uh, all of our, our theoretical concepts of finding out what is important to the person that we're working with. And then it's up to us to draw on our toolbox of knowledge and present them with strategies that can help them get better. And within all of that, I think the, the healthcare system is very overwhelming. And when people have a life altering event, it, it's very overwhelming. And there are so many different people on their care team providing what they need mm-hmm. to get well again. Um, that that I feel like I this, tying this back into keeping it a little bit more simple. Like, what are we going to focus on now? And looking looking at the big picture, and then bringing that back to the simple steps or the strategies Mm -hmm. that will serve them best during this time and understanding that the acute time is different than the subacute time frame that is different than the more chronic Mm -hmm. stage of something and it healing is a journey and it it takes as long as it takes that's right it does and you said a couple of things um that kind of make me want to go back a little bit you talked about getting into our toolbox of knowledge and keeping it simple. You said those two things. And I start going back to thinking about like, you know, my clinical competency and how I feel with certain, with certain techniques and modalities. And, you know, I know you and I've been talking about mirror therapy and you have a whole mirror therapy program, which I love. Um, and I go back to thinking about when I first started learning a little bit about mirror therapy way back when I was like an entry-level clinician. And I remember using some of the mirror therapy. I didn't know. I mean, this was just such a small, minute amount that I knew about the imagery portion and getting, making sure your patient's in a very small, quiet space and, you know, bringing in the mirror. Um, and I, I tried doing that and some of it 
was a little successful, but honestly, I didn't know really what the heck I was doing. And I think, I think that's where people kind of like where clinicians kind of get nervous sometimes, or we get scared. Uh, and I, or I can speak for myself. It's like, gosh, I don't know this. And how do I learn it? And how do I keep it simple? And how can I pass this on to my patient and feel confident that I know it? Because if I'm not confident that I know it, they're not going to be confident to use it. And my students aren't going to be confident or competent to use it. So I want to just kind of bring in like the mirror therapy that you have been developing program wise. And I love how simple and easy you've made it for clinicians to understand how to easily implement this modality. Um, It's just, that's where that's what I need. And that's where I think a lot of clinicians need is just easy step-by-step because we don't have a ton of time in the clinic. And when we come home, we have families, we have things that we want to be able to do for ourselves to kind of decompress. So we don't always have a lot of time outside of um, work. So keeping it simple and making it feasible to do during the patient's time with you is a big deal. And So I just kind of wanted to bring that up because, well, I just, I like your program and I, I know it's going to be easy for, for clinicians to implement and for patients to use. And I wish I had something like that a long time ago. And I, I didn't, I just had pieces of it. And so I never touched it again. I never did it again because I'm like, I can't do this now. I know, oh my gosh, I can absolutely do this and should be doing it. It's interesting what you're saying, because you, I remember when you were learning about mirror therapy, and that's what inspired me to want to know more about mirror therapy. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And I, I love this conversation and thank you for your kind words about the program that I made. I remember our conversations around it. And that's a lot of the inspiration for me to learn about it. And I want to talk about the learning curve. So one of the things that I loved about researching mirror therapy Mm -hmm. from the place I was at in my career is that I had so much more understanding of neuro, of like neurological concepts, um, anatomy, the recovery process. So all of my experience coming into that and things make sense in a different way when you have some experience in your practice. And it's fun. I think it's more fun to learn when I already have an understanding because I'm not working so hard to understand these concepts. And Mm -hmm. well, and you're not afraid. You're not scared of what you're seeing. And if something is intimidating, it can very much put a block up and make you kind of shy away from an experience that could be amazing. Exactly. And sometimes we think something is going to be hard to learn. And so we don't give ourselves the opportunity to learn either. And Mm -hmm. that keeps us from growing. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful for people in my life who inspire me. And you are one of those people who inspire me. And um, I think that this, well, Pete inspired me. Mm-hmm. This podcast inspires me. All of the guests that we have on here and the people who write in sharing their thoughts about different things. I find it very inspirational and it encourages me to continue thinking differently about things and just trying to find ways that we can serve our clients and each other. And each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In meaningful ways in ways that are mm-hmm. in true service so that a person is receiving a true benefit from something. And this is what OT is. It's meaningful and purposeful. And I think sometimes we forget that it's okay. It, ha- it, it should be meaningful and purposeful. Otherwise the outcomes aren't always what we want them to be. And that's not just in a clinical setting. It's with each other. It's, it's learning. And if we don't have those things, then we're not going to I don't feel like we're going to benefit as much if we don't have that connection. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. 
ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.